Hello and welcome to JP Morgan's At Any Rate podcast, uh, focusing on emerging markets. I am Luis Oganes, Head of uh, Global Macro Research. I'm joined in this podcast by my colleagues, uh, Jessica Murray, who's part of the EMEA Economics Research Team, and Lydia Harvey, who's in an ESG specialist in the Global uh, uh, index research group uh, to discuss a report that we recently published that was titled IEM Sovereign Climate Strategies, Climate Related Investment in EM Sovereign Debt is Modest and Has Significant Growth Potential. Uh, back la last year, we published uh, the results of another survey of dedicated EM investors, uh, which sought to better understand what uh, they are doing with their ESG uh, uh, aligned funds. We found that uh, E, you know, the environmental pillar, uh, was actually the one that was more underdeveloped and we wanted to dig in deeper, which is why uh, we decided to pursue this second survey and publish the, uh, this report just to focus a bit more on the sovereign climate strategies of EM dedicated investors. We invited 86 clients uh, to participate in the survey. This time around, however, we did get a much more uh, lower response rate, 35% of respondents uh, uh, fill out the survey versus 70% in the first survey last year. Uh, we do see this lower response rate uh, that is possibly reflecting the more nascent adoption of specific climate strategies, um, or possibly you know, continued underrepresentation of that E-pillar within EMESG frameworks. Notably, however, you know, most of the respondents were European asset managers uh, compared to US or Asian. So maybe there's another message there as well. The third respondent that uh, we received uh, um, uh, several results from uh, uh, managed $333 billion uh, in uh, asset center management that are benchmarked to JP Morgan suite of EM indices, which all, you know, despite being a, a rather modest number, is still large enough uh, to represent, uh, uh, to have a strong representation, we would say uh, in, in, in terms of you know, providing a flavor of how EM investors are thinking and approaching uh, EM sovereign uh, ESG climate strategies. So um, let me start that discussion uh, before we go to the actual server results, Jess. Uh, if you can um, tell us, you know, what is the relevance of the climate investment in, e in EM from your point of view? Thanks, Luis. Uh, look, we think investing in EMs is critical in the fight against climate change. We know that climate change is a global issue, undoubtedly, but we also know that emerging and developing economies are set to suffer disproportionate adverse consequences because climate change will amplify existing inequalities and create new ones. And of course, EM economies generally have less capacity uh, for defensive or adaptive investments, especially because fiscal positions became much weaker through the COVID-19 crisis. And of course, where there are still outstanding developmental challenges, climate related projects just might not be a priority. So the private sector really does have an important role to play uh, in terms of climate related investments in EM, and it's more important now than ever. And would you say that investors are considering excluding EM countries on the basis of poor environmental scores at this stage? So how important is this engagement? Yeah, so perhaps surprisingly, uh, in the report, we found that an overwhelming majority are actually not excluding uh, any EM sovereigns on environmental grounds. The minority that were excluding uh, told us that they were maybe excluding GCC countries or Venezuela. So in some frameworks, a country might have a very low uh, E environmental score, but it can be offset by uh, S scores and, and governance pillars to avoid being excluded. And then other people will exclude on a pillar by pillar basis. So a weak environmental score can be grounds for immediate exclusion or perhaps an escalation to an ESG committee for further investigation, for example. So there's quite a hot debate, I'd say, around how useful exclusions are. 
For some, they're an obvious safeguard against directly fueling climate change, uh, for instance, financing the government of an oil producing country. But many told us um, they prefer to be more inclusionary, so using their position uh, as asset managers and asset owners to influence policymakers towards better climate outcomes. And I think this is particularly relevant for the larger asset managers who probably have more influence uh, in the eyes of issuers. So here we're really touching on the power of engagement within ESG, uh, and the majority of the investors that we surveyed told us that they are engaging with policymakers on climate issues, but only around 20% are doing so regularly. 36% are not directly engaging, but ex express their desire to do so. So there's certainly scope for improving engagement between policymakers and, invest and investors on uh, climate issues. So Lydia, switching to you, you've been focusing on climate investing. Uh, so what can you tell us about how the landscape is looking at right now, both broadly and in the specific case of emerging market uh, uh, investors? Yeah, absolutely. So. As Jess mentioned, there's certainly a lot of momentum for climate solutions and climate strategies within the investment community. We're seeing a lot of momentum as well politically. At COP26 last year, we saw the political will of emerging market countries kind of stepping up their ambitions. There was an unprecedented number of sovereign pledges to achieving net zero emissions and we saw 140 countries really, which account for 90% of greenhouse gas emissions setting pledges. So EM countries were notably among those last year, uh, setting pledges to curb greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and we know as well that the estimates of green investment required to reach net zero by 2050 globally are between you know, five and nine trillion US dollars every year. So in this context, there's huge capacity for expansion in green financing. And as well, we've seen labelled green bond issuance cumulatively reach one and a half trillion in 2021. Um, and we think that 2022 could be the first trillion dollar year for green bond issuance. Um, in EM, the figures are a little bit smaller and there are only still a handful of sovereigns that have issued labelled bonds. So there's definitely still room for growth in EM. And investors are telling us that the demand is outstripping the supply. We have seen some uh, issuances outside of green bonds as well, which is worth mentioning. So we've seen the sustainability linked bond issued this year by Chile. And that's showing that there's this scope for innovation at the product level, whether it's with, you know, KPI linked bonds like this or, you know, more broadly within finance. And I think the last thing to mention really from the investor point of view is the the reach and impact of regulation. So whilst it's primarily still coming out of the European Union, it is acting as a blueprint globally for investment for investors. And the two ones that are most important are the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation and the Benchmark Regulation, both of which are really driving um, both investors and banks to develop and implement climate-focused solutions. Well, the numbers that you mentioned about uh, the issues of green bonds are certainly impressive. So are investors actually differentiating between the different types of green bonds that you just mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. So as we mentioned, the demand is still outstripping the supply within the EM labeled bond market. So investors are still at the moment focusing on kind of sovereign level metrics. However, the, the demand and the desire to look at instrument level metrics is there. So within the survey, um, investors cited the lack of labelled bond issuance as a major constraint to increasing their climate allocations. 
So for those investing in green bonds, over 70% of investors do actually differentiate between the different types of green bonds. So there is an acknowledgement broadly around the different shades of green, but we're seeing that overall the, the demand is far outstripping the supply. Uh, anecdotally as well, discussing this with clients, we know that a lot of clients investing in these instruments are doing their due diligence at the instrument level themselves where they can, um, while they wait for, I guess, the market to kind of catch up in terms of how these instruments are labeled and, and issued. Um, and again, just, just to note, you know, whilst developed markets are dominating this green issuance, we are seeing EM starting to move. So China had a sizable issuance, the third largest last year. It's reflecting the government's regulatory push, um, which will likely persist. And we'll see this in other major economies as well. In 2021, we saw some frontier market countries like Serbia, and Uzbekistan also joining the ranks of green and sustainable bond issuance. So, you know, I think that the situation is definitely moving towards um, higher issuance within EM and investors are certainly ready to pick, pick up that debt. Jess, back to you. So let's discuss the main takeaways of uh, this uh, EM uh, uh, sovereign uh, survey focusing on, on climate. Sure, Luis. So one of the, the key takeaways, I suppose, is that for EM investors, governance in ESG is still probably the most important pillar because governance determines social and environmental policy at the sovereign level. But what we learned in the survey is that EM investors are concerned about climate change. It came up as a top three concern uh, in one of our questions. And they also recognize that EMs face almost equally uh, physical and transition risks. Interestingly, interestingly, though, some of the other E issues, so natural capital and biodiversity, ranked at the bottom of investors' concerns. So there's clearly more focus on climate change explicitly within the E pillar. We also learned that investors are generally seeking a real-world impact uh, in their investment framework. So this was reported explicitly, and it also comes through in some of the terminology associated uh, with their ESG framework. So terms like labelled instruments and UN SDGs, they're associated with generating real-world impact. So we know for sure that the intention is there. But at the same time, investors cited that their concerns regarding the integration of climate within their frameworks are that one, lower income countries will miss out on this financing, and two, that there will be no real world impact. So there's really a tension there between what the um, intention is to have impact and what the outcome is right now or what it might be in the future. And that's something that, you know, we still need to unpack. Well, the issue of uh, the, the, the high correlation between uh, income levels of countries and uh, and, and ESG is certainly a big concern for investors. Uh, would you say that there's any other uh, challenges uh, that are facing investors that emerge from this survey? Yeah, so the top three obstacles that investors cited uh, to increasing their allocations uh, into climate-themed investments in EM were inadequate sovereign-level climate data. So that might be that the data is incomplete across the EM universe or it comes with especially long lags. Uh, the second was a lack of label bond issuance, which Lydia has spoken to, where you know, we have demand outstripping supply. And the third was a lack of climate-aligned investment benchmarks. So clearly there's a desire for uh, industry, industry standards on climate. But we also found that there's some lack of confidence in the climate assessments that are being done by credit rating agencies. So only a minority, uh, a third, stated that climate risk is currently adequately reflected in sovereign credit ratings. So this is really motivating investors to do their own proprietary assessments in-house. We do see scope for some uh, you know, increased confidence in the credit rating agencies 
and this will come in time, you know, invest, uh, credit rating agencies are investing in their capabilities, the data's improving, uh, and there's clearly a desire for industry standards, but that we thought that was something interesting. So just to finalize, Lydia, uh, you have uh, uh, deep dive the world of carbon analytics and put some questions uh, on the topics in, in, in the survey for our clients. What did you learn from their responses? Yes, we have absolutely done a deep dive last year. We looked into all the available sources for sovereign level greenhouse gas emissions because we want to incorporate this data into some of our indices. We published a report on it, by the way, called Navigating Greenhouse Gas Emissions. I encourage anybody that's interested to give it a read because we really went into detail about our findings. But at a high level, you know, a couple of things are really interesting before we get into what the survey told us. But a couple of high level things is that number one, there's really only a handful of primary databases for sovereign greenhouse gas emissions. We reviewed nine um, global emissions databases. And actually there are really only three that we would consider to be kind of core and all of the other databases are relying on them and they're kind of secondary. And one of the problems with that is that there's this risk that these secondary or non-core databases, which are often free, may be discontinued or disrupted and there's often quite a long lag as well. So these are some of the things that investors are having to deal with. Secondly, I would say, you know, let's be honest, country estimations of greenhouse gases are still very uncertain. If we're thinking about carbon dioxide from fossil fuel combustion, that's reasonably certain. We have about a 5% uncertainty for OECD countries and about 10% for non-OECD countries. But as soon as you get into methane, nitrous oxide and F gases, those estimation uncertainties range between 30 to 50 to over 100%. So when investors are incorporating this information into their um, portfolios, you know, there's not necessarily that comfort that the data has any kind of really good credibility as well. So basically there's this gap as well between what we want and what we want to integrate and what's available. And the last thing worth mentioning is that at a sovereign level, greenhouse gas accounting can be done on a production or a consumption basis. And it comes to this question of, I guess, fairness. Would you be penalizing the global south for being the manufacturer of the world, if you will, while they're exporting all the goods and services uh, that the global north is, is consuming? So we asked our investors in the survey a number of questions around this. And what we saw was really essentially the same um, confirmation coming back from them. So most of the investors are relying on these publicly available free data sets for greenhouse gas emissions. However, they're acknowledging these challenges. It's not necessarily the most timely or comprehensive data for them. Um, and further, they don't necessarily have agreement about how to evaluate a country's greenhouse gas emissions about the fairness and the responsibility. Is it production-based? Is it consumption-based? And how do we deal with all of these other gases that are very important, like methane, but we still don't have a clear understanding of what a country's methane emissions are? And then lastly, we asked them how they calculate the portfolio carbon footprints. And the overwhelming response from them is that they're using a weighted average carbon intensity method. So really just looking at carbon intensity on a country basis, whether by GDP or by per capita, and just multiplying that by the weights in the portfolio. It's a very simple way of calculating a carbon footprint, but it's also for sovereigns, probably the most realistic way of calculating a carbon footprint. And it's also endorsed by the task force for climate related financial disclosures. So that's definitely, I think, um, where most investors have landed in that space. 
Well, certainly a lot more to discuss. Uh, emerging market economies are, uh, you know, if we want to, uh, you know, if we hope to uh, have uh, all this uh, focus on climate make a difference down the road, uh, EM economies need to be participants on this. You know, they're still not actively participating from a finance point of view. So certainly there's a lot of growth uh, potential uh, in EM sovereign climate uh, um, uh, uh, funds and, and strategies. Uh, we will be uh, continuing with uh, more research products uh, related to this topic. Uh, certainly as the uh, industry, the sector matures, there's more regulation coming on board. And uh, we are certainly uh, somewhere in between the, the large uh, uh, gap that still exists between supply and demand of instruments that are uh, aimed at uh, addressing uh, uh, climate change. So um, both uh, Jess and uh, Lydia, thanks for joining me in this discussion and thank you all for listening. Uh, this communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022, JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on 26th of April of 2022. Thank you.